0: You're listening to the LSE Cold War Podcast with its host, me, Jack Barsou-Mellish. This week on our inaugural episode, we have Professor Arnie Westad. Arnie is the current Elihu Professor of History and Global Affairs at Yale University and co-founder of LSE Ideas. He's one of the world's leading experts on the Cold War and has published numerous highly influential books on the subject, expanding the breadth of our understanding about the conflict, including the Global Cold War and the Cold War, a World History. So Arnie... You're a very prolific writer when we're studying the Cold War and I want to take sort of work as a whole and see it as a theme and as an effort to expand our understanding of the Cold War beyond just a narrow focus between the USA and the USSR to an event that was truly global and also had its origins that extended all the way through 20th century history. So why do you think it's so important to our understanding of the Cold War that we have that broader focus
1: I think it's important to look at the Cold War in a broader sense, mainly for two reasons. So the first one is that for a very long time, uh, during the Cold War and immediately after the Cold War, people got used to this idea that the world was divided in two. So, you know, it was the position of the then superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, that seemed to dominate everything else. And not only was that, I think... Um, a wrong and rather illogical picture of what was going on. But it also constrained us in terms of how we were trying to deal with some of the aspects of uh, getting out from under the Cold War, uh, to try to set things right or at least make things better in the 1990s. Um, Since there had never been that kind of absolute bipolarity that some people indicated, both in their writing and not least in their political practice, I think that made it more difficult to handle the legacies of the Cold War. So that's the first one. And then the second one is, of course, that you know it was outside of the bilateral relationship between the superpowers and even outside of the main uh, arena for political conflict at the beginning of the Cold War, which was mainly in Europe. It was outside of these areas that some of the most dramatic, most of, some of the most cataclysmic Um, events of the cold war unfolded so in what we today call the global south and particularly in those countries that prided themselves uh, a generation ago of being part of the third world so post-colonial world or the post-colonial projects of trying to set up new states to try to build different forms of political interaction um, based more on on solidarity based more on a different form of societal uh, integration those were in many ways the main losers of the cold war conflict that's where m- you know most of the uh, worst consequences of the cold war took place and i think it's important to note that both as an historian but also in terms of political practice so those are the two main reasons why i think this is important
0: and when people ask me why i find the cold war fascinating why i choose to research it i tend to give them two reasons Firstly, that it's the most important event that never happened. There was always the possibility for it to end in a nuclear cataclysm. And the fact that that didn't happen is hugely important. Also because of the effects that it had on the process of decolonization. And do you think as we get more distance from the time period and also as we get more scholarship from outside of Europe coming into the mainstream that we will start to think that the most important thing that happened in the 20th century post-1945 was not necessarily the Cold War, but the liberation of the people of Asia and Africa and other places. And the way that the Cold War affected that is one of the most important things to study about the Cold War. Yeah, I I think
1: so. I mean, I think it's important when you look at the events of the 20th century, even the late 19th century, which I've written about quite recently, um, in an overall sense, um, the Cold War, in that narrower sense, certainly the, the one that we talked about at the beginning, um, has influenced a lot of things, but it hasn't determined everything. You know, um, I think when we look back at the 20th century, you know, a couple of centuries from now, I don't think it is the Cold War that will stand out in that form. That will stand out uh, as the most important set of events of the 20th century. I think decolonization uh probably would loom larger as a as a core set of events Of course, all of these influence each other in in various forms and it's important to note that particularly if you want to you know write history about it but i think decolonization will be seen as in many ways more significant i think the rise of asia towards the end of the 20th century will probably also be seen as more significant in this long term um, in this long-term sense so I think that's really important when you study the Cold War today to not just move away from this idea that the Cold War determined everything. I think we are sort of beyond that now, but also in many ways to give independent agency to um, the kind of um, ideas that existed that were not bound or practices that existed that were not bound uh, by by the Cold War itself. Um, and I think decolonization and, and the rise of Asia are probably, from what we can see today, the most important one.
0: And there's a lot of focus in your work about the idea of the Cold War as a fundamental ideological conflict rather than a, a more realist understanding of it as a conflict purely about power how do you feel that played out in the Cold War? And what currents were there that presented themselves as alternatives to both capitalism and communism that were existing at the same time as the ongoing Cold War?
1: Right, so I do see uh, the Cold War uh, mainly as being driven by ideas. And these ideas, of course, have their origin in different kinds of practices. So I mean, it's not just sort of free floating ideas. And I think it's important to underline that. Um, they are connected in various forms to the social existence and the economic existence that people, people had. But they manifested themselves in a set of ideas, um, sets of ideas I should say, um, that uh, were particularly important in terms of understanding what this conflict was about. And that's true both for those who practiced Cold War and very often in historiographical terms for those who try to understand it. So the historians who are who are preoccupied with it. Um, so I do think that ideology or ideologies really mattered uh, with regard to the Cold War. Now, I'm among those who do not necessarily think that understanding uh, politics and particularly great power politics in ways that also emphasize what realists often call for, namely interests, and maybe particularly material interest, that that is in some kind of contradiction with the idea of taking ideology seriously. It's just that one has to be very, very careful with looking in a direct kind of way for an interest-driven set of policies that would explain everything. I think that's the problem with where we were uh, up to quite recently with much of the realist, in sort of international relations terms, understanding of the Cold War. It was a a framework that simply didn't fit, you know, what it it tried to to understand. So um, I'm very much of, of the mind that we have to look at the Cold War as a broader phenomenon from very many different angles. And I think, you know, I'm a I'm a pluralist when it comes to approaches. I see value in, in many of them, even way beyond how I myself practice this. But I think the you know the the attempt at reducing the influence that ideas and ideologies had, often you know, in, in catastrophic ways of the Cold War is taking away from it something that could really help us explain what was going on.
0: And what role do you think those forces that were outside of either of the two major camps played during the Cold War? I'm thinking here things like India and the non-aligned movement. What role did they have on influencing the actual conflict? Well, it depends, of course, on what kind
1: of of set of events or what time period that that you look at. Uh, As I write about in in, um, the most recent book I did on the Cold War, I think India is one of those countries that is much uh, misunderstood and much underrated in many ways in terms of its contribution to the Cold War, Um, both in terms of its own development, which was crucial uh, in Cold War terms for what happened internally in India, what happened in, in terms of India's economic development after the decolonization, which was very much inspired by various forms of, uh, of Soviet uh, practices, um, but also in terms of its foreign policy orientation. And that was very much bound by um, the difficulties that were there in terms of trying to develop um, a non-aligned foreign policy in a world where there was this tremendous pressure uh, from both superpowers against that kind of development. I think you saw that in a number of other um, uh, countries outside of of Europe and North America as well. So Some of this is about sovereignty, which I find increasingly interesting in terms of trying to look at the Cold War. I think uh, the Cold War, as it developed, maybe particularly towards the end, so in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, was a kind of system that attempted to deny um, states, and you know, this goes both, I think, for Europe and for uh, the global south, um, the sovereignty that was built into the promise of their independence. Right. I think that was one of the key issues in terms of what happened um, in the part of the world that we don't often look at in Cold War terms that just became so much more difficult because of the conditions under which they had to develop. So in in that book, I use India as an example of this, but I mean, this could be repeated with regard to Southeast Asia, with regard to Africa, and even in ways that are slightly different because of the the, uh, background in terms of uh, uh, decolonization, Um, with regard to um, uh, Latin America and, and,
0: and, and what happened there. People... Forget, I think, because of India as a democratic state, which had a democratic system, they think of it as also a capitalist state. But particularly at the very beginning, under Nehruvian socialism, you had five-year plans and and very heavily Marxist-influenced forms of economics. Not only influenced by our our colleagues over at LSE, where a lot of their economists came out of, but straight from the Soviet Union, and. This thing you say about sovereignty I find very interesting. One of the other big things that happened post-1945 was this change from an international society that was basically just a European international society where only the sovereignty of those powers and Sort of associated states like america really counted to one in which sovereignty was being extended to the rest of what is now called the global south where it became a truly global international society but at the same time the cold war is trying to restrict and restrain that sovereignty and bring people into alignment with one of the two major superpowers and do you see the cold war as playing its part in transitioning us into a global international society or as a, an effect that slowed down that transition
1: that's a really good question jack i'm I'm probably still not convinced that we have the answer to that to that question I think to some extent it was both so I already talked about the degree to which the Cold War international system tried to uh, restrain constrict uh, sovereignty at least sovereignty in the way that it was understood um, by new states that emerged in the in the post-colonial era. On the other hand, if you look at it in terms of concepts that came out both from the US side and the Soviet side, these were very much state oriented, right? So you could say to some extent that since the cold war system only recognized states, you know, it didn't recognize social movements. It didn't recognize Um, you know, form of transnational practice, it was, it set many of the very bad precedents with regard to migration that we are still struggling with today in terms of, you know, cutting off people's access to to move. Um, it, It was both restricting in terms of sovereignty, but at the same time, it underlined the centrality of the state, right? And I think, and I've been discussing this recently in a slightly different context, that that created the kind of framework that we have seen in in the post-Cold War world, where sovereignty has become increasingly important, but in the sense of moving away from recognizing anything but a state-centered form of, of international system, right? Um, That when a lot of um, countries, particularly in Asia uh, today, talk about um, international democracy, what they really mean by that is a democracy among states, right? That underlines sovereignty, that underlines um, uh, non-interference, that is not preoccupied with any kind of internal practices, however uh, uh, problematic they might be, you know. Um, in the name of total state sovereignty. So I think that comes out of the Cold War as well, to some extent.
0: Given that the Cold War was such an aggressively ideological war, and we came so close to hot conflict between both sides, how did we manage to transition from this period of extreme tension to a period of detente? What was it about the states that allowed them to transition to this more normalized relationship?
1: I think there were oh, probably three stages in this. And I think one has to understand this chronologically, as, as sometimes is quite useful in history. Right. So from the 1970s on, uh, the Cold War and the, the global international system um, went through a transformation that was mainly driven by economic development. Um, there were other sides to it as well, and, and you know sometimes uh, some of the people who looked at what I've written recently sort of believe that I overemphasized the economic change, which is not my my uh, my concern. I mean, you know, I came come out of a practice where you really emphasize the framework of ideas and ideologies that that existed. But I do think that as capitalism transformed uh, in in the uh, what we sometimes now call the long nineteen seventies. Over onto a new form of practice that emphasized, for instance, financial capital that emphasized, you know, um, the, um, the free uh, movement of, of, of investments, free 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 trade, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, that put tremendous pressure on the Cold War system, the way we had seen it develop over the uh, 25 years that, that preceded it. So that's stage number one in a way. Then stage number two was what happened during the 1980s, where where that process in many ways continued. But at the same time, at the level of both the United States and the Soviet Union, you had significant political change. And I think it's important to underline both sides with regard to this, because obviously, the reforms uh, under Gorbachev that took place in in the Soviet Union had a very important role in how we were able to get out of the Cold War um, without a, a confrontation that led to war and a, and a nuclear cataclysm, as you, as you mentioned earlier on. But there were also significant changes on the U.S. side, a kind of normalization of U.S. foreign policy that meant that one actually had to negotiate with the other side. Now, negotiate with the Soviet Union, but in you know in a circumstance, obviously, that favored the United States. So there wasn't a negotiation among equals anymore when you get to the late nineteen eighties, but it was still an emphasis on negotiation. I could easily have seen a United States under, under a different political leadership. I do think Ronald Reagan uh, as an individual was really important here, who would have said, no, 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 we're not going to negotiate. I mean, this is, we, we're going to go back to the more traditional Cold War approach which is total confrontation with the Soviet Union, particularly now that the Soviets are weak. So that's the second stage. And then the third stage is the easiest, which is, of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union from within. So if that hadn't happened, then I, I think that more of the elements um, that we got used to from um, the early part of the 20th century and, and up to up to the late 1980s would still be us today. So that's a so, somewhat long-winded answer to your question, Jack, but I, I do think it's important to understand this in stages, the, 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 the Cold War didn't suddenly go away. Um, it and that's a really important reminder, actually, for those of us who think about how we can change today's international system for the better. Right? Um, it didn't happen all of a sudden, it happened over, you know, half a generation, maybe even a little bit more than that. Uh, but it was critically dependent on people making the right calls.
0: I just want to bring us back to that idea of the economic change in the 1970s because we have this period characterized by things like stagflation where we see a transition away from a Bretton Woods style system as the rate of profit falls in America and Europe and we're no longer rebuilding after the second world war and those profits are no longer there towards what is now our existing market-based capitalist system and I think there is a lack of nuance often when we characterise the capitalist West as just being one consistently ideological economic entity that runs from '45 to today. But actually there's this serious change that takes place in the 1970s. But how does that change the character of the foreign policy in terms of its relation towards other states?
1: So I, I think that is really interesting because I do think that... Um, If you look at that transformation that we just discussed, um, the long 1970s, sort of from the late, from 68 or thereabouts and up to 82, 83, and that's really what we're talking about. I do think that that meant that there were new forms of interaction, some of it, you know, based on state actions and some of it not based on state actions, that developed very, very fast. And I think. This is one of those issues where speed is actually important to understand, right? Because these fundamental changes took place in a, I think almost entirely unforeseen direction when you think about it from the perspective of the late '60s or very early 1970s. The kind of predominance of financial capital was not so, and particularly U.S financial capital, right It was not something that people would have foreseen in the early 1970s when a lot of analysts, a lot of economists, we're talking about the decline of, of the United States, and it certainly sort of looked that way, right? Um, so to me, this is very much about unintended consequences. Um, the United States was, in many ways, the first country, um, though even, you know, in this case, it lasted up to the late 1970s, that readjusted itself to this new kind of international economic reality. And that ability to readjust itself first brought tremendous advantages to the United States, at least for a period of time. And you see some of the same difficulties coming back to haunt the United States, particularly with regard to its own domestic economic practices. By, you know, I would say the late 1990s. But after after two decades that really privileged the United States economically, so there is a big discussion that is brewing now. I think. About it because it has direct implications for our own time and age. On well, the degree to which the United States was capable of translating its strategic and economic strength in relative terms, so here relative to the Soviet Union and almost everyone else, over onto economic advantage during the 1980s. I'm not sure it's quite as simple as that. Um, I think the the picture is more complicated, and I think you have to look at some of the basic transformations that were not state-driven that took place in the 1970s. But it is an interesting discussion, and it's one of those that we don't really have, or we haven't had until quite recently in terms of the understanding of the whole rule.
0: I want to just... Take this last five minutes for the future of Cold War studies. I'm one of the first generation of scholars that's born entirely after the end of the Cold War, several years after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And how do you foresee scholarship changing with a new generation of scholars who did not experience the Cold War firsthand at all? And what challenges do you think they are going to face compared to existing scholars who lived through parts of the Cold War?
1: Well, first and foremost, I think that is a very good thing that there are people who are now starting to look at this who have no sort of living experience of it, because I think sometimes that set people free to think in new directions um, about what they are studying. I think many of us, myself included, who experienced at least a part of the Cold War, for us, it's taken a long time, sort of intellectually, to get away from each other. So it's really only now. It's a book that I'm writing at the moment, uh, together with Professor Chen Jian, who also used to spend time at the LSE, on China during the 1970s, which was a period I myself experienced there, that I feel that I'm free to to do that. I mean, it's easier for me to do it. 20 years ago, it would have been much more difficult. Um, So that's good. I do think there are two principles that will be of significance. We've discussed both of them, though, in in brief here. The first one. Has to do with how the Cold War was interactive. So it involved a lot of different kinds of human of human experiences at the same time. So I think we've now moved well beyond this idea that of people would be saying no, it was all about economics, it was all about ideology, it was all about military strategy, it was all about nuclear weapons, it was all about individual leaders. We, we sort of got beyond that, and everyone who comes to this now, looking at them and say, well, it's a combination of these kinds of factors that really had had significance, and it depends on the individual um, uh, aspect that you want to look at. That's the first one. And then the second one, of course, there is a tremendous revolution still ongoing with regard to sources, with regard to how we can actually study the Cold War. And this is something that I feel in a strange kind of way today is sometimes overlooked. I mean, of course, we we are now in a time period everywhere that I know of, maybe with a few European exceptions, where access to documents of the past uh, is becoming more difficult. It's becoming more restricted in many ways. But that's not the same thing as saying that that access has been cut off. So if you compare what we have access to today with what we have had access to at any given point in the past, it is a vast superior um, source base. And i think it's important to take that into consideration not that sources determine everything they shouldn't but being able to base yourself on more voices and here i'm thinking maybe particularly about voices that are not state-centered right that are not driven by high politics with regard to understand, understanding the cold war i think for your generation that will be tremendously important in terms of how you go forward in your studies
0: I think that's a that's a really hopeful note to end on. I think as we see a new generation of scholars enter into the field, and also an expansion of scholarship outside of just Europe and North America to incorporate all of these different voices and understandings that we didn't have the field of Cold War studies be rejuvenated. So thank you for joining us, It's given us lots to think about. And it's been a a really great inaugural episode for the podcast. Um, So yeah, thank you for coming along.
1: Thank you, Jack. It's been a great conversation. Enjoyed it.
0: You've been listening to the LSE Cold War Podcast with its host, me, Jack Barsoomelish. You can follow me on Twitter at jrbm underscore Theory. Be sure to follow the podcast. We release new episodes every fortnight on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and the LSE iPlayer. Make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Like, share the podcast, and leave a comment or a review so we can hear your thoughts about the episode. Again, I'm Jack Barsoomelish, And this has been the LSE Cold War Podcast.